I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman podcasts. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! with fans and people, people who Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Crime Doctors. They're not regular doctors, they're Crime Doctors. A one-stop shop for doctors with dirty gurneys, unsanitary hospital gowns, and guns instead of syringes. Crime Doctors. Hey, speaking of Crime Doctor, and this is totally coincidental, but today we're going to be talking about the episode Paging the Crime Doctor. Later on, you'll hear from Martin Pasco, who is a story editor on Batman the Animated Series, as well as one of the writers on this very episode. But first, you'll hear from Zachary Sigelko and Chris Johnson of ADPT Productions in Chicago. They're old friends of mine. We used to do improv in college together, and now we all do creative things across the country. But before we even dive into that, guys, I've got a new show on Howl, which is an app you can download. It's like a Netflix for podcasts, but uh, we'll just call them audio shows. Anyhow, it's called Who Gibson Vegas Cowboy. I'd love for you to listen. You can listen to the first episode for free on Earwolf Presents, or you can download the Howl app for a month for free using the offer code HOOT. It features Andy Daly, Paul F. Tompkins, Weird Al, Rachel Bloom, and myself. It was co-created, written, and directed by me and Eric Martin, who you can also hear talking Batman the Animated Series in this very podcast on episode 13. So before we dive into the Batman stuff, I just wanted to play a trailer for Hoot Gibson, Vegas Cowboy. Howdy, I'm Hoot Gibson, Vegas Cowboy. I got my own eponymous show. It's called Hoot Gibson, Vegas Cowboy. Now here's what it sounds like. Let us try again. What is your name? Hoot! Now, Hoot, hold the phone there, Hoot. Hoot Gibson, am I glad to see you. Aren't you Hollywood actor Hoot Gibson? Hoot Gibson, I presume? It's Hoot Gibson! Hoot is childish nickname. Hoot Gibson, Vegas Cowboy has thrills. Chills. Your ice-cold poolside lemonade, m'lady. Rope tricks. Oh, this old thing? I just use it to rustle up cattle on the ranch. Like this! And genuine smoochin'. With non-stop action. Ow, 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 my finger! And non-stop history. Seems to me that between our new super weapons and Senator McCarthy's tireless efforts in Congress, we're sure to win the war against the communists. Featuring Matt Gourley as Frank Sinatra. Hoot, would you excuse me for a moment? I'm going to kick over all the furniture in this room. Jeremy Carter and Baron Vaughn as Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. We got ourselves a real joke over here. Two if you count me. And we don't. Rachel Bloom as Angie Dickinson. Duh, hi Angie. Did you just start a sentence with duh? 
Paul F. Tompkins as Howard Hughes. How do you write a movie about Las Vegas if you don't believe in capitalism? Weird Al Yankovic as Tom Pembroke. Come back, baby! I love you! I realize I have a funny way of showing it! <laughs> and starring Andy Daly as Mr. Gibson. Oh, shucks. Call me Hoot. With more guest stars than you can shake a six-shooter at. Quiet, Ezekiah. Daddy's doing the talking. I'm simply dying to know. Throw down your pistols. Oh, my God. That's a lot of money. We would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you, Angie. And the Rat Pack. And just who are you, anyway, cowboy? Hoot Gibson, Vegas Cowboy. Created by Eric Martin and Justin Michael. Coming this fall to Howl FM. Thanks for listening. I hope you come back and listen to the whole show. See ya! Adios! Take care! Pal! Goodbye now, friend! Alright, now that we've gotten the plugs out of the way, let's dive into... Today's episode. Paging the Crime Doctor. Dr. Matthew Thorne, forced into losing his medical license and becoming the crime doctor by his younger brother, crime boss Rupert Thorne, must perform delicate surgery on Rupert. But he can't do it alone, and kidnaps Dr. Leslie Tompkins to assist. Too bad Dr. Leslie Tompkins is friends with the one and only Batman, who discovers her disappearance and rushes to track her down. Story by Mike W. Barr and Laren Bright, teleplay by Randy Rogel and Martin Pascoe. Directed by Frank Parr. Music composed by Shirley Walker with animation by Dong Yang. Featuring guest voices, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Alfred, Roger Dumpass, I'm saying it how it's spelled, as Hoffman, Joseph Campanella as Matthew Thorne, George Zunza as Chubb, Gary Kroger as Beecham, Diana Muldar as Leslie Tompkins, and John Vernon as Rupert Thorne. Today's fan. Zachary Sigelko and Chris Johnson. Like I said, Zach and Chris are old comedy buddies of mine, and they were visiting from Chicago, where they work with ADPT Productions, a production company that does a multitude of things. And guess what? We decided to talk Batman the Animated Series sometime after we watched the movie Congo. So with that frame of reference in mind, please enjoy this interview. Here we are, just three old friends crouched around a microphone in the record room. How are you? Chris Johnson, Zach Sigelko. We're good. We're is doing great. We're doing great. Sigelko. It is Sigelko. Okay, good. Uh, you, you nailed it. It sounds like Wiggletoe. It, it sounds like, do you tell people it sounds like my Wiggletoe? My cousin came up with that when she was seven, and it has stuck as like the family line of what her name is. I think so. if you were an adult who came up with that, it would be creepy. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. From the brain of a Call me Wiggletoe. <laughs> Call me Wiggletoe. Yeah, you're the Mad Hatter or a pedophile. Um, which isn't funny. Pedophiles aren't funny. Right. <laughs> Good God. I've already... I've lost it. Uh, so you guys are in town from Chicago. You're staying Correct. here. Mm-hmm. We just got to watch a Batman together. It was great. It was great. Yeah, yeah so Chris... What was your experience? I feel like you have less experience with Batman the Animated Series than Zach. What did you I would remember? say so. I remember watching them after after school. Wait, were they on Fox? Yeah, it was originally Fox Kids, okay. and then they went to like Kids WB. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would watch some episodes after school, but it wasn't like I 
watched it religiously. I would just hop in, and I didn't really know the entire Batman mythology. Do Who's, you know who Batman is uh, underneath I, the cowl? I do now. <laughs> it took one episode. Yes. Yeah. And his name is Rupert Thorne. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big twist. I thought Batman was a good guy, but he's now a bad guy, right? You're more of an obsessively watch Congo kind of person. <laughs> Congo, for the record, is a fine movie. It should be on AFI's Top 100. You look at any movie after Congo, and you can point to specific scenes... That, oh, yeah, they, they got this from Congo. Oh, okay, yeah, wonderful. What they movies got the- now do you think are pulling from the <laughs> critical failure Congo? <laughs> critical failure? I mean, it's... It I don't know I don't what you... 22 seems high to me. <laughs> it is a... I'm going to be honest. It's a great film. I mean, uh, I, I'm with you. I'll watch Congo. I love seeing uh, evil monkeys, evil apes being lasered in half. Uh, right. Yeah. As then they jump into volcanoes like lemmings. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I mean, it's... There's too many, I would say, to uh, to name, but I I, th- I might be misquoting him, but Martin Scorsese said Congo changed my life. <laughs> he said that for sure. Uh, something along those lines, yes. I, he probably said all three of those words at some point <laughs> in his life. Congo changed my <laughs> life. <laughs> uh, so you, you, you were like a casual Batman watcher as a kid, more of a Very Congo so. man. More of a Congo man. I, like as much as this is a bit, you did watch Congo forwards and backwards. Or well, or well, uh, first on Congo, went, went to see it in the theater uh, three days in a row at the the theater that was thirty minutes away. And this uh, was back in Chicago. Yes, yeah. It drove out to uh, the Des Plaines, Illinois theater. Uh, it was uh, half an hour there. Watched it half an hour back. We decided to go back the next day, and then decided to go back the. The next day, so saw so it three times in a row. Did it's you just... go with your family? But yes, yeah, uh, dad, brother, and then cousin. Yeah, and we they all, all wanted to see it again. Oh too? yeah. Well, I mean, it was. What should we do today? Oh well, there is a you know an Academy Award caliber movie out right now. <laughs> Why don't we go see it again? Why don't we go see it again? I legitimately think there's a podcast in the making of you talking to different people you know about the movie Congo <laughs> and only the movie Congo. Because I would quote I have that. lived that podcast. It would be great. Yeah. Well, we watched it last night. Oh, it's so good. Or the night before. I can't even tell. It's all blurred together. Can I, let me ask, though, on this. Let's never get off the Congo subject. Uh, did you see Jurassic Park before you saw Congo? Because Congo I, is like them trying to capture the Jurassic Park magic. Right, it's not Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Yes. So were you, like, did you know that? Did you get that energy when you were a kid? Or was it just well, something totally on its own? The, the only thing I really knew was, oh, this is another book by Michael Crichton. So it's equally as good. So you were already a Crichton fan at that age? Uh, I think so, yeah. I was a young Crichton sure, fan. Yeah. I read, like, I read some Crichton as a kid. Uh, I really liked Lost World, the book. I was real excited when they were making the movie. But this isn't paging the Crichton doctor we're talking about. (laughs) It's paging the crime doctor. Oh, very. Thank you. It was very very seamless. seamless. So, Zach, you you have more experience watching Batman, or a little bit more. I just, I grew up watching it with uh, my next door neighbor, George, who now, I think, is in a hardcore rockabilly band, which... Has no relation. That's just, I think, where we all That's what up. George is up to. That's what George is up to these days. Uh, but yeah, we used to, like, he and I were, like, best friends from, like, five or six, and we would just sit and watch, like, our two shows were basically this and Power Rangers. Uh, and I was, like, a little kid cynic. I think I thought superheroes <laughs> were dumb. Like, it's, I don't know, I never bought Spider-Man. I was like, wow, well, it's bullshit. Uh, but Batman was like, oh, he gets hurt. 
like dark stuff happens to Batman, and for some reason that was like what I was super into. There is something about being a little kid cynic, right? Uh, what for yeah. whatever reason, whatever led you down that path. Mm-hmm. I feel like we all kind of end up at Batman. Yeah, uh, so. it feels like it feels like you know you get to you're getting away with something as a mm-hmm. kid watching this show. Yeah. I, I didn't remember this episode almost entirely. Yeah, I don't think I <laughs> I hadn't seen it since college, maybe. Wow, okay. Uh, which was, you know, a while ago for me. 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, somewhere in between 30 and 40 years. Right, right. Uh, but it's pretty, I mean, like we say this a lot on the show, but it's pretty damn dark. Yeah. Very dark. And it's, well, this one was interesting, too, because, like, I feel like as a kid, if I had watched this, I would this would have sort of been a whatever episode for me, just because yeah. I was really into, like, Clayface and the Penguin. Like, those are my guys. The Penguin was your guy? Oh, my God, I loved the Penguin. What did you love about the Penguin? Oh, just, I mean, his, like, snooty shittiness. Like, just, <laughs> he, he was, like, oh, I hate to say lovably obnoxious. <laughs> um, but then also later when, like, the, the Danny DeVito movie came out, and, like, I think that was because when did that come out? Was that it was 90... pretty similar timing. Yeah, Four? it came out. This came out around the same time. As okay. That. Yeah, and I had seen that movie, which is like crazy as a kid. I feel like, uh, but so I think I carried a little bit of that over. But then Clayface, actually, I, I loved Clayface specifically because my friend George's dad was a struggling actor. <laughs> And so you could relate. So I could oh, relate. Boy. I was like, "This was this is my dad, my friend's dad." Yeah, and a mob boss poured down, uh, or a <laughs> businessman poured a bunch of uh, horrible shape changing goo. Yeah, uh, yeah, down his throat. That's all. That's you the only it in silhouette. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think th- this would have been a whatever episode for me as a kid too. It was but, like kind of you know boring to a kid and interesting yeah. to an adult. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, like way more thematically dark than I'm used to seeing in these episodes, where it's all about like. Bruce like feeling sad about not knowing his dad at the end. It's that was a an incredible end. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Uh, let's let's start at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah, okay. That title you card. don't want to spoil the episode, right? <laughs> I don't know if anybody know. listening is spoiled by this at this point. I think if you're listening to an episode about page, it's not even a villain centric episode. No. It's paging right. the crime doctor. If you're a Leslie Tompkins fan, you know this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the title card is one of the creepiest oh, ones. Oh, really very weird. scary. Uh-huh. It's got this real pulpy vibe, like old like pre-code horror comic kind of mm-hmm. look, or like Tales of Suspense or something. Yeah, and, it was just like a wrinkly eye, and you don't see the eye. And yeah, holding the up the syringe, a right? giant syringe, and yeah. it's yeah. This is this is going to be a, a scary episode. You're in for a wild ride. Maybe a couple <laughs> people will get a gurney push. <laughs> That was a mode of violence. Yes. I think it was three different gurneys, at least. Yeah. Man, I mean, they kept going through gurneys. <laughs> what are you going to do? You're in an underground hospital. There are gurneys everywhere. Okay, uh-huh. let's use some gurneys. <laughs> so it kicks off with uh, an armored car uh, yeah. being robbed by an ambulance, Uh-oh. in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let the ambulance by. That's an emergency vehicle. <laughs> They're teaching kids a nice lesson about it. Right. right. Uh, well, the lesson turned mm-hmm. to be, the, you know, a swarthy kind of looking sea captain yes. gangster. <laughs> a, su- a southern accent <laughs> captain. Yeah. With, with a, a beautiful blonde and a, beard. Yeah, he yeah. looked like John Carpenter's son. <laughs> <laughs> no, not John Carpenter's son. Kurt Russell's oh, yeah. son. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, I could see uh-huh. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they, they start firing at the window with a machine gun. Yeah, which is clearly bulletproof. Cause, yes. Right? It doesn't go through it. But well, they're, they're not wheel. the smartest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're not the crime doctors. <laughs> they go to crime medical school. They're, they're wearing a beanie. <laughs> 
Uh, but they're, they they rob them of a prototype medical laser. Get the box. <laughs> yeah. And they fire it at Batman a few times. They good laser sound, by the way. Like yeah, I like, like not the sound a, design a lot. Like real simple. Felt like a like a real like what a laser should sound like, right? But it sounded different than like yeah. It didn't it's not like, like a laser a, gun. Like it didn't like sound a, like a Star Wars laser. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, I will say that once there was a laser out, I was expecting some apes to be sliced in half <laughs> by lasers. When that didn't happen, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. It was a little anticlimactic by the you end of the. Worried, you were worried that Batman wasn't in Congo's lost city of Zin. Correct. I didn't know. Uh, you know, there was a lot of mystery, and I assumed uh, they needed to just go to Mount Makenko to figure out. The mystery. Here. If it's not clear that Chris legitimately knows everything about the film Congo, <laughs> it will become abundantly clear by the end of this. Was I'm, Tim Curry ever in the Batman universe? Did he ever get a role? So a here's a fun factoid. Uh-huh. Tim Curry was the original voice of the animated series Joker. That makes right, total right, sense. And right, they right. recorded a bunch of, you know, a bunch being maybe like somewhere between three and six episodes with him and replaced him after the fact yeah. with Mark Hamill. They really? just were like, this isn't working. Um, I I saw like a kind of celebration of Bruce Timm in college. I actually skipped out on a second nature practice. How were you guys were on the team? Second nature was our college improv group. Um, And I I went to go see Bruce Timm at the Egyptian in Los Angeles. Uh, And they were kind of doing like a retrospective of his work uh, while Justice League Unlimited was on the air. So they showed a new episode of that. But they also showed like rare footage of Tim Curry as the Joker. I wish that was a bonus feature on wow. something. How was he? Could you see why they replaced him? He was good. You know, like Tim Curry is pretty solid mm-hmm. in everything, sure. but Mark Hamill I know. is just better in this case, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Tim Curry's got the clown. He's got Pennywise yeah. down. I don't think it was as I don't remember if it was like not menacing or if it was just kind of goofy. Mm. I really don't. I don't have much of a, a recollection. It just didn't stand out. I feel like Mark Hamill really he gave it something yeah. unique. Well, he captured like both like the menacing, scary, but also the goofiness. Yeah, in a way that's hard to replicate. I feel like I don't know how he. Yeah, he really balanced it all. Mm-hmm. He really channeled Caesar Romero. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he a hundred percent. He grew out his mustache, <laughs> over it. Stepped up to the mic and said, I'm ready. Uh, so, I can't believe that there's a laser that's very similar to the one in Congo. I'm that's just no saying. Joke. I'm <laughs> just saying it was a cutting edge technology that they did not use in the correct way. Well, it literally it cut breaks. off Batman's ear. Oh, but then doesn't right. it, they try to shoot him again and they can't? Is yes, it a moment? it's a prototype that jams, I yes. guess. Okay. You need more diamonds. But we do get... <laughs> We need more diamonds. diamonds. Uh, Batman's ear from one of his his cowl gets sliced off or zapped off. Um, Batman has a bad time this episode. He gets the crap beat out of him. Yeah. Yeah. He he really, he's, I feel like almost every episode, Batman's like the, you know, doesn't need a look, throws a punch behind him, knocks out a thug. This time, I think that happens to him later in the episode. Yeah, yeah, Uh uh-huh. And there was uh, a moment where he takes out one henchman and he thinks, okay, now he's on a roll, and then the other henchman is firing right at him and he, he has to duck. I mean, yeah. it's, it's nuts. That was, but I think that captures like why, as a kid, even I liked, like, I hated Superman. Superman was my least favorite superhero of all time, and I, I know you're a Justice League fan, so I can't. Yeah, but no, I mean, we can have different opinions. For me, Superman was just like, what's the point? You can't, like, the guy isn't, like, impenetrable. I'm never feeling like he's in danger. You want to see a bullet rip through your hero. Yeah, I 
basically. <laughs> I would at least want to see a laser cut off the collar of his Well, you feel like yeah, there yeah. are no stakes yeah. to Superman. Exactly. Right? Like, you right. know, if this guy is nigh invulnerable, then why are we supposed to care about him? We know he's for sure going to survive. Well, and I could never grow up to be Superman. That's the other part of it, too. Whereas, like, mm. as a kid, you're like, if I just you know, go off and learn all of Batman's fighting stuff, and oh my god, I had utility belts galore. I you had real to, utility belts? Oh, yeah. I would make them. I would take fanny packs and like add things to the side of them. What did like, you put in them? Oh, st- stupid shit. Uh, <laughs> just like sand sometimes. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> sand? Okay, okay. Back up. For what purpose? Because it's like, because yeah. as far as I could get, that was that was like, you know, like a smokescreen thing. <laughs> sand. Oh, okay. 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 I could, okay. That's uh, more practical. Okay. Sand in the eye sucks. Uh, and then I, we would try to make little, like, uh, what are they called? The batarangs. Oh, so you would make you so made they were like sticks and stuff. This was all you know. This was wood (laughs) child imagination in the woods, Batman. Yeah, that's the joy Uh, of being a child. Yeah, Uh, and I felt so there was like something about Batman that was like tangible that you could reach and like be. Like you can't do that with Superman. No, I mean I think you're right. I I was reading this book by Glenn Weldon, um, which is kind of like a historical look at Batman and kind of like the rise of. You know the nerddom, or at least like the the possessive fan. It's a really good book. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was talking about how you know everybody says that Batman's more accessible because of that, but he's literally the most inaccessible. <laughs> he is a billionaire right. to begin with, uh, which is so. It's it's such a you know he brings this up, but it's like yes, the American dream absolutely deceit is that we can all do whatever we want, <laughs> yeah. uh, and Batman is like the prime example of like us <laughs> believing like. Yeah, he's a man. He yeah. we could just become that. Yeah, That's we're all it. just done in our luck. Batman's. Is what we <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, so and the down on this was a true down on our luck. Batman yeah, in the episode, time. he's big getting time. beaten the crap out of. Mm-hmm. We kind of chalked it up to him maybe having a concussion. Yeah, they, it's nice that they actually like say that. Oh yeah, he got hit in the head and it affects him for the rest of the episode. Right. We see him with Alfred. Alfred dutifully patching up that uh-huh. cowl. Yes. Kind of nice. To, I like seeing those details. You don't see that kind of stuff most of the time but the fact that you know oh this is what he's doing this is how this happens what happens when a bat suit gets destroyed what happens <laughs> when batman needs medical help right so leslie Tompkins, mm-hmm. uh alfred's got some snide quip about uh i don't know a doctor <laughs> <laughs> oh well, yeah yeah and the picture of, and I didn't realize at first that is that is the dad, that is Batman's dad and the right. doctor, right? Thomas Wayne and Leslie Tompkins, which is a fun connection. Yeah, very uh, much so. Well, and the show always kind of like puts her in like Batman's mother role in a weird way. She is very much a maternal figure, yeah. one of the only people that he's open to. Uh, yeah. You know, like she's one of the few people that knows who Batman really is. Mm-hmm. Um, Can we have a, like an Alfred? Dr. Leslie Thompson, like a, a romance? Look, could that, that, would be could that happen? I, I mean, I'm you know. sure somebody is shipping it online, <laughs> right? Like an Alfred Leslie fuck <laughs> Okay, I, I just, I thought they'd be like this walking in a park does. and, yeah. uh, okay, I mean, whatever floats your boat. Alfred does have a girlfriend in one episode. It's um, another, uh, like, older, older woman who... Uh, they both get turned into trees by poison ivy. Oh, <laughs> yeah! Bad first day. Good. If I've ever heard of one. Uh, yeah, get out there, guys. If actually, if any listeners can find some Alfred Dr. Leslie Tompkins uh, <laughs> porn, are you going to send some porn? No, no like, I'm like, saying a, some, like a short story or, like a, or yeah. something. Um, soft core, soft core. Yeah. You just see them in their diapers. <laughs> in their diapers. <laughs> 
is this because Wait, they're anybody... both into being treated like babies as a fetish, or is this because they're so old that they're incontinent? Right. Well, I mean, both. yeah, was it just me, or were Alfred's pants super bulky, and he kept saying, "Excuse me, Batman, I have to go change my diaper." I never did I not pick up? Did I not pick? Okay, I think that's why he was wearing that bulky valet suit. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's discuss that for a second. So Alfred gets dressed up. He has this valet outfit. I think he wears it in other episodes. But it's pretty insane that, like, his only... Alfred is Bruce Wayne's only personal employee. Basically a guy who changed... I think at some point says, like, I changed his diapers. Uh, <laughs> and so, then he has to change his own diapers. So, like... <laughs> Why is, is this Alfred choosing to do this, or is Bruce making him change outfits? Well, no, I mean, either Bruce Wayne yeah. is an asshole, or Alfred is like very meticulous, and like this is the most fun part of his job. It's like, oh, I have to drive the car. Let me put on the valet suit. Well, Batman gets to wear a suit, right? Doesn't Alfred get to wear? It? I right. guess. I mean, wearing I think Alfred is wearing a suit almost all the time. It is true. He's got a tux. He's got a little butler tux. Um. Okay, so where were we? Batman got patched up by Alfred. He, we knew he had a concussion because he yes. had a little bandage on his forehead. Well, she says that he had a concussion. Oh, she like you have tells to us, take these pills yeah. and all that. And, and I know take you're not going to do it. Take it right. You guys were listening. I was eating the sushi we ordered. Yes. <laughs> uh, we did eat sushi and watch Batman. A fine combination. Oh, wow, what, a, what a great night. <laughs> Uh, so yeah we, we kind of get introduced I do think they do a good job of getting Leslie Tompkins introduced to people who I imagine you had no idea who she was Chris correct and then when it was revealed that she knew that Batman was Bruce Wayne I was like wait hold on am right, I miss- oh Bruce. okay yeah. there's only a handful of okay yeah, I thought that they did that pretty expertly. Yeah, uh, for like, it was subtle, but it like definitely reinforced it. Oh, she knows. Yeah, okay, so we I, I was on communicate board. all of this mm-hmm. beforehand. Yeah, uh, cool. She's the coolest. She works in a free clinic in Crime Alley. Yeah. Right. Uh, I love that we saw the silhouette of Batman with the zapped off ear. Maybe this yes. was before Alfred was patching it up. I, I mixed it up, but uh, it was cool that that's how they kind of introduced him being there. Oh yeah, and then she says something along the lines of, "Oh, I've got another patient. <laughs> Get the hell out of here, people who really need help. <laughs> I need to help this rich man. <laughs> it's a free clinic." Uh, well, I mean, he, but it's the Bruce Wayne free clinic, right? Uh, yes, he. Okay. I believe he no, does. No, it's after it. the dad, though. Oh, it's after the dad. Thomas okay. Wayne. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, so we then we then we flash to the doctor, right? The crime doctor. Oh, the crime himself. crime doctor. Mm-hmm. Matt, right? Yes, Matt, Matt Thorne, yes. Rupert Thorne's brother. Rupert right. Thorne being the gangland boss, everybody's mm-hmm. favorite gangland boss, who only shows up in that scene. We, he never speaks after he goes under. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, his kind of thing gets dropped a little bit. We don't know if he wound up because we know that at the, well at the end Matt is in prison, right? He's being. Interrogated. I think so. So yeah, Matt is. We don't know what happened. To it's just thought. a. I think he. It was a success. Yeah, right? they, like and it was went very well. The, the operation was a success, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that like uh, I guess they wanted to you know introduce us to Matt through Rupert, but then right. he's gone for the rest of the episode. Yeah. And there's it's implied. So what uh, that Rupert got shot, and Matt didn't. Or pulled the bullet out, but didn't tell anyone there was a bullet there. Didn't right, report. so he didn't was discredited. And that's why he was disbarred. What's the? Uh, what's that's for lawyers? What is it? He lost his license. Right. Right. Yeah. He lost his doctor license. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're no longer a doctor. You're a crime doctor. <laughs> Paging the crime doctor. <laughs> uh, nobody said Paging the crime doctor. <laughs> I really wish that happened. Uh, yeah, I thought this was, like, it's, again, tangentially very fun. Like, 
Already, this is a show where we don't need to see characters like Rupert Thorne appear many times, but we do. Yeah. I like that they built out this world where it's not just costumed criminals. We're meeting a B-villain's brother. Mm-hmm. This right. is an episode about the brother of somebody we barely even know, yeah. which is such a... I think that's what makes the show so great. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were able to weave in such great backstory and do it without tons and tons of exposition. I thought they were able to tie in things very nicely. Yeah, yeah. the fact that they connected it to Bruce's background, they gave mm-hmm. him stakes. Uh, sometimes it feels very forced, or like the timeline is forced on like why things are happening in the order they're happening, and at what... You, you know, like, but Batman calling out, like, uh, two doctor-related, you know, problems in the last 24 hours, I think that's not a coincidence, uh, is, you know, obviously a set-up coincidence, or yeah. non-coincidence by the writers, but I feel like just hearing it called out is enough to, like, ease the blow of something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a 22-minute episode, we gotta get through this quickly. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot, I mean, there's just, because I think they're, they're getting us to that moment where the doctor... Is like maybe gonna kill. Uh, what's her name? Leslie. Terrible names. Yes. And it's that moment with the needle, uh, and you don't like. It's like oh my. And then it. What's it, oh? It's the other villain. Uh, like has the moment going. Ee! Like you, you stuck me. Right. Yeah. So Leslie actually does success. Like they kidnap Leslie Tompkins, right. which to do is the operation. Real creepy. Yeah. A home oh, yeah. invasion bursting in there. She. She's a fucking badass. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Her she, wielding a baseball bat. <laughs> what is her life? It was crazy. I'm going to knock your brains across the across street. Across the street. <laughs> yes. Yeah. First of all, that's in this show. They were able to say that. <laughs> Second of all, what a cool person. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, she should be Batman. Yeah. It was I great. I want to see Leslie don the bat suit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there, there was rough, uh, it was rough when they cut to uh, a close-up on Matt, and then you hear the goons basically beating Leslie up and like, yeah, you know, getting her uh, all uh, roped up. Yeah, that was that was pretty creepy. There was a mm-hmm. lot of like tilt up as violence happens yeah. in this episode, or like mm-hmm. kind of pan away. Uh, even when Batman was like smacking people against a wall. Well, this is all like very emotional, violent stuff. It's like people watching people they like get hurt. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, that's a good point. It was really sad. Yeah. Uh, and then she, like, dutifully, as Leslie Tompkins does, I mean, she's also, you know, being threatened by mobsters, right. helps successfully remove a tumor. Right. From yeah. tumor, uh, Thor? Heart tumor? Heart tumor heart is tumor. what it looked like. It seemed like that's what they're saying it was, which seems like, that seemed to me like medicine for kids. Right. I know hearts are important, and I know tumors are bad. <laughs> Therefore, so he's got a heart tumor. this is the clearest mm. bad thing that could happen yeah. without saying... The word cancer. Yeah, basically. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised they said tumor. Yeah, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I can't imagine that in a cartoon. I don't want to see... Like, can you imagine, like, Adventure Time? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, I guess Adventure Time is not the kind of show that's going to have a tumor story yeah. anyway. Um, but they do tackle adult themes. Yeah, I, I, I feel like... So afterwards, they're like, all right, going to kill her. We'll escort the doctor out. Mm-hmm. And he feels that he's like, let me do it. It'll, even describing that it'll oh, seem yeah. like it was a heart attack is yeah. so creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then he gets the goon gets injected. Yeah. What did you guys think was going to happen in that moment? I think we both thought that. I think you said it when we were watching that he was going to inject her with just something else, like something that never right, like out. a uh, just a, a saline solution or yeah. something. Pull a. Uh, Doctor McCoy on uh, Planet Vulcan type thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> No such story. 
That's a, that's a phrase. Yeah. Well, it's a little freaky when you find out the goon got stabbed too, because you're like, did he just kill the goon? Right. Yeah, like, the, there is a yeah. moment, but then he says, like, yeah. "Oh, this is just a sedative. Yeah. I have not turned into a cold-blooded killer. Yeah. No, I only watched yeah. you got uh, get yourself kind of mildly beaten up. You know, I watched an <laughs> older okay. woman I admire and am friends with, and it seemed like maybe there was some. I yeah. thought there was like a romantic history. They did imply maybe a romantic triangle. Oh my with God. Alfred. I'm just saying. <laughs> you're looking for three-way softcore. <laughs> Is it possible to do a softcore three-way? Just a lot of implications. Someone's out there doing that, I'm sure. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if there's a Leslie Tompkins, Alfred Pennyworth, and Matt Thorne fan fiction where they're sleeping with each other. I'm not sure. If it doesn't exist, it should not. Yeah, guys, yeah, make it The uh, long tail, the long tail. (laughs) Make it a long tail. Well, you know, they always talk about, you know, the long tail of, uh, you know, there's the mainstream stuff, but then you go out to real niche things and it kicks out to the long tail. If you go way, way, way down the long tail, I'm sure there's something. We're talking along about those life lines. is just porn. Uh, stuff on the internet oh, and just okay. being able to have oh, more that's a phrase, options. The long, long tail. Yeah, the long tail. Because it's like, it I like, it though. Uh, like if you just look at music. All the big artists have the majority of things, but you have access to a lot of indie artists and all that, so you can have access to tons and tons. But if you look at it, like if it's a bar graph, Mm. there's a percentage of the top 40, and then it really uh, drops down. I've gotten lost in this analogy. I'm going through corridors and don't understand what's going on. (laughs) We're talking about bar graphs. What? Charts? Well, I guess not bar graphs. Chart graphs. You're, but I see what I mean. It's yeah. it, it, somewhere in the niche, the nicheoverse of the internet. Correct, that helped, yes. right? To create a word. <laughs> yeah, niche yeah. The nicheoverse. So Batman shows up, gets beaten up like crazy. Yeah. Right? Shows up like out of an crazy. elevator. Immediately gets the drop. The dude gets the drop. Yeah. <sighs> Poor guy. And, uh, and then they, they go into a medical supply, like a walk in closet, and a guy pulls out four scalpels <laughs> and is just throwing them at Batman. I think there's nothing creepier than a scalpel. Oh, I think. Any, yeah. I, I feel like the Joker's wielded it before, but like yeah. any any kind of like knife stuff is always so much more viscerally for sure oh, yeah. creepy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's throwing scalpels like crazy. Batman gets hit by at least the first of the the gurneys. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah, he gets hit by a gurney, knocked into the box boxes, stacked yeah. in front of a huge like a cabinet. book, yeah, yeah a bookcase, and that falls on top of him. And it's like, yeah. hey, man, you're having a rough, a rough couple days. And I thought the city was dangerous. <laughs> Call back to Batman in another episode. <laughs> Was it the was it a Killer Croc thing? Yes. Okay. You've listened to this podcast, or you remember that episode? Uh the former. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you've listened to this, but didn't really watch the show. Right, but I mean, it's 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 a fun it's a fun show. It's you doing it. You're bringing in fantastic people. I mean, come on, Chris, please. <laughs> you kidding me? Keep going. <laughs> uh, that's a real uncle joke. <laughs> so it ends up uh, being. Up to Matt Thorne to sit, you know, like mm-hmm. he saves Leslie Tompkins. They make a Big real time. death-defying jump over, over, yeah. you know, across buildings. buildings. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're not the tick. No, they can't no. bound <laughs> like that. Well, and they're reminding us again and again that those are like two old people. Like yeah. he makes that jump, it right. does not land well. Right, no, well, I mean, he doesn't. And I thought he broke his arm for a second. Yeah. And you hear the squish of a diaper. <laughs> 
Only you heard the squish of the diaper. Okay. You saw Momo was breaking his arm. I saw him checking for his diaper. <laughs> Uh, Leslie d- doesn't make it quite as well. She's right. clinging to the end, maybe because her diaper weighed her down a little bit more. <laughs> Batman takes out the sailor, the sailor with the gun. We can backtrack to we'll call him the sailor because he looked <laughs> yeah, like yeah, a sailor. Yeah. The but, southern sailor. But then forgets that she's hanging over the ledge, <laughs> right? And he goes to tie him up. Yeah, and he's like, and then the doctor basically has to say like, "Little help!" Like, hey, she's slipping. Hey, the one of the yeah. only people who you trust in your life is about to die. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. He did take time to tie up this guy. Uh, ooh, what a brutal moment, too. Like, he's like, please don't shoot. And the guy just shakes his head. Yeah. yeah. Like, hey, I'm a cold-blooded killer. This is what I do. killer sailor. <laughs> yeah. I'm a killer sailor. Don't trust a Gordon Fisherman. <laughs> uh, so Batman ends up saving the two diaper-clad people. I'm just going to jump on board. Nice moment of the, the classic, like, superheroes to jump and catch the falling person. And, yes. Oh, that was great. It's true. Yeah. And it was like a cool yeah. shot, too. Like, he yeah. fired the grapple, but the grapple went towards camera and yeah. then it cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was swinging, like, kind of a, like a saving, saving like a damsel in distress sort of yeah. uh, shot, but it was it was not your typical damsel. It yeah. was a badass doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I still feel like she walked away with agency. I didn't feel like... No. She was like a, a shitty female character. She made the jump. Oh, no. And yeah, it's like, yeah. I think. Really, it's Batman's fault that uh, she almost died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to blame him for this. Uh, and then it wraps up with that sweet. Oh, sweet yeah. what a great moment. moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love this. Is I've talked about this on the show before, but this is what I think makes this iteration of Batman stand out above other mm-hmm. uh, versions and it's the kindness of him it's him trying to help people who could be rehabilitated or you know he give, giving jobs to goons who fall in with the wrong crowd right and helping you know I, I love that this guy you know it's a very like clear like moral choice like my career my life or this woman's life and you know the doctor goes for the altruistic mm-hmm choice and then batman kind of rewarding that is i don't know like to me that's like what makes this version of him the better superhero than any other version of batman well because batman is basically saying like i'm gonna get you your license back yeah which is a bold move for a dude who just kidnapped you know your your mother figure yes and the guy still you know is like nope what you know he thinks it's a crooked deal yeah right yeah Uh, which is a nice moment because it shows he's changed he is not going down that path anymore. Which is so, this fucking 22 minutes, we didn't know who this guy yeah, was right. before this episode started. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and it ends with the moment that we talked about in the beginning. Um, yeah. Tell me about my father. Yeah. And they, it is a little, like, it cuts out sound a little too quickly. I feel like it's one of those things where maybe they were like, oh, maybe we should have recorded the beginning of conversation and faded <laughs> out. But it just suddenly cuts to, like, yeah, <laughs> but I Just mean, gesturing. I, I think we were able to read their lips. Said you know that uh, <laughs> Thomas Wayne was sent on a, a mission <laughs> to Mount Makenko uh-huh, to, <laughs> to get to uh, get diamonds, uh, and that uh, you know Bruce was too young to uh, to be able to handle uh, the truth. So they fabricated uh, Batman's backstory. I think is. Is that what everybody read on everybody's lips? I don't know I if think, we read anything I didn't, I didn't about... quite get that. No, I didn't get okay. the Congo implications <laughs> yeah. from okay. that. Um, I, I honestly was lip reading, I'm wearing a diaper. <laughs> and I need a new diaper. And your daddy loved diapers. 
but it was uh, earnestly it and was, honestly it was a, a great, sweet moment. A great yeah. um, and and just another like a sad ending. It was it was a heartwarming ending. Yeah. Actually. Yes. Because he was getting some answers. I feel like Batman rarely gets that. And there's something nice about seeing him heal. Mm -hmm. Because he's a a guy driven by kind of not healing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Just, you know, like... uh, And I don't know if there's anything we could have heard that would have been satisfying also. I think it's kind of nice to just imagine it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Batman is... I mean, I, I assume that he is surrounded by people in his life who can tell him about his parents, like Alfred. I guess right? so, yeah. It's a nice thing to know that he just like likes collecting these stories. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, guys, I think we did it. This is fantastic. What, yeah. what are your... Any closing thoughts on Batman the Animated Series, paging the crime doctor? We'll start with you, Zach. It is weird. It's like I'm as a, I feel like as a kid, this would have been one where maybe I switched it to Power Rangers. <laughs> but like I think, as an adult, it feels way more like the show was built. Obviously, there are moments like the heart thing. That's clearly this is a show built for kids, but it doesn't talk down to them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they still like treat it like kids can handle the the adult themes and the the really deep family themes in this, which I'm impressed by. Chris. Well, I, uh, my question... Okay, so this was a season two ep- episode? Yeah, at least it was on volume two of the DVD, but I okay. guess it's season two. And, and w- so what year would this have been? I think this one came out... That's a good question. Maybe it, it felt earlier to me yeah. still. felt like 92, 93. Okay. So it hadn't... Uh... <laughs> I know where you're going and I'm mad. It hadn't... Or well, what, what, what years did the, did the series run? <laughs> It ran 1992 to 1998, if you count the new Batman adventures. Okay, so right basically in the middle of that is 1995. It's a real slow burn to get to a joke. <laughs> yes. We're taking a I should off. have made it a little smoother, but I didn't. Basically, what I'm saying is it, it's it's a good show because it was released uh, around the same time that Congo was. Right, Prime Congo. <laughs> right. Uh, prime Congo time. And I, I think, thank you for that closing thought. Yes. <laughs> Uh, guys, check out Congo. <laughs> Available on DVD for probably under $6 somewhere. <laughs> you can find it in a bargain bin for like 50 cents. I bet you. <laughs> well, I've bought most copies for bargain bins across the country. more than one copy? <laughs> no, no, no. Don't worry. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Moving on to today's guest, Martin Pasco. Martin Pascoe is a writer and story editor on Batman the Animated Series. He's credited with See No Evil as well as Paging the Crime Doctor and Mask of the Phantasm, but he worked on many episodes as being a story editor required him to shape up the episodes, as you'll soon hear. He was a great guy. It was so good to finally sit down with him, and we're going to be hearing more from him in another episode down the line. So please, enjoy Marty Pascoe. Well, I'm sitting here with Martin Pasco. How are you? I'm just fine. Really glad to be here. Yeah, Thank I'm you, glad Justin. that we made it happen. I know it's been a lot of emailing back and <laughs> yes, forth. Yes, it took a little bit. Me bugging you persistently. <laughs> I'm so excited because we're talking about two great episodes. I just rewatched See No Evil, which we'll talk about in the next episode, but also Paging the Crime Doctor, which is incredible. <laughs> you, you probably know more about them than I, than I remember, but I'm sure you can 
you know, goose my memory. Yeah, I just brought you over here to retell you the stories <laughs> of both of those and then say bye. <laughs> well, I'm really, I'm really uh, gratified by your interest in paging the crime doctor because that, that is one of my favorite episodes of the ones that I worked on. Um, and, and, and when I say of the ones that I worked on, I'm including, you know, the 15 or 17 episodes that I completely rewrote. Yeah, what um, capacity were you working on the show for all of those? Okay. Uh, I was hired in as a story editor, and I was the first story editor hire of Alan Burnett, the new supervising producer at that time. And um, what we did was, well, I worked a little bit differently than some of the other story editors. And one of the reasons why I, I think things worked so well between Alan and I was that Alan was very, very open to a different idea of how to do the job. Um, they were what they were doing was they were having writers come in and pitch, and then on the basis of an acceptable premise, they would get the assignment. And I said, no, no, that, that takes forever because when they brought me in, they were already way behind on the scripts. And I said, let's bring in some writers that we know can execute. We'll work out the story, uh, it, the beats of the story, in the office. I'll make a call to Fox. Get the premise provisionally approved and if we can do that in a day that will save you a week right there with all the paper going back and forth and Alan's going oh okay okay and that's essentially uh, how we got the show in a matter of like two or three weeks and, and then also bringing in the other story editors um, that's basically how we got the show back on, on track what the story editor generally does though is um, he's the guy responsible for the production rewrites you don't buy endless rewrites from a writer you know, it's, it's first, first draft, revisions, polish. And if they're not nailing it by the time, you, you know, they've done the second draft, we usually don't go. Or we didn't, and most story editors don't usually go to the polish. They just cut them off. And then it becomes the story editor's responsible, responsibility to rewrite the script. And then, of course, the notes from the network, the notes from the studio, and in this case, the occasional note from DC Comics, that was all the story editor's responsibility to execute those notes. And what we were responsible for was an approvable script that could be recorded. How many story editors were there at the time? Um, at the time I was brought on, there was the first hire, Sean Derrick, and then it was just me. Um, Michael Reeves was brought in at my recommendation, and uh, Paul Dini was always wanted by Bruce Tim on the show. But when, when I started, when Alan started... Um, Paul still had commitments with Animaniacs and another show he was doing with uh, Tim Burton called uh, Family Dog. Mm -hmm. And that tied him up for about a, a month or two. Um, but then he joined us and Paul was different. The three, the three of us who became, I mean, Sean moved on uh, in a few months, but uh, the three of us who remained, the writing team that did Mask of the Phantasm, mm -hmm. each of the three story editors worked a little bit differently. Michael believed, as I do too, but we don't always have the luxury, but Michael believed that he had its best to at its least. So what Michael did was dip into his very, very rich Rolodex. And he brought in writers that he knew would nail it. And so he would have to do minimal rewriting. And he put most of his energy into working out the story, getting it approved, and then getting the writers to the point where they could just go. But he was always building on their ideas. Um, Joe Lansdale. The guy who wrote, uh, I think, Perchance to Dream. Yeah, um, I sat down with him. He's, he's been a guest on the podcast. Oh, terrific writer. Yeah, he's incredible. Terrific he's writer. writing across the board. Yeah, 
Exactly. And we wouldn't have had him on the show if it hadn't been for Michael. Uh, Michael also knew Gar and Judith Reeves Stevens, uh, who did our first Hugo Strange episode. Oh, yeah, Strange Secret and of Bruce Wayne. He brought in Jerry Conway, but only because I couldn't get to Jerry first. Jerry's an old buddy of mine, too. <laughs> um, and Paul basically just liked to write. He didn't, he didn't really want to edit other people. And since the first script that he turned out for us was Heart of Ice, <laughs> everybody was happy. Saying, We're good to Paul, go. <laughs> Paul, yeah, yeah. Just, just keep writing, Paul. You know. But I was the guy who, who, who got the train wrecks. I was the guy that... You were the felt, fixer? <laughs> well, they felt that I, they could get a page one rewrite out of me. And I was happy to do it. And that, they got a number of uh, producible scripts that way. In fact, when, uh, after we broke the first couple of stories... When I came aboard, they handed me a box, a huge cardboard box filled with I don't know how many scripts, <laughs> but they were, I won't, even, I won't give you the number, but it was close to six figures in script fees, the things they had bought and written off or were about to, re, to write off. And this was all prior to you getting yes. on board the you ship. You see, the, 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 the thing was when the, the first Tim Burton movie was the success that it was, Big surprise. And they had greenlighted the second one. Warner Brothers decided that they wanted a Batman animated series. And they turned to WBA and said, so? And at that point, WBA was not in the action-adventure business at all. Mm-hmm. It was funny animal stuff. And they were like, oh, how do we do this? But Bruce and Eric Radomski sort of raised their hand and said, can we do this? We'd like to, can we take a shot at it? They wanted to be showrunners. So they did a demo reel that became the basis for the main title sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think with, it exists with, on with YouTube now. Hmm? Yes, right. And they did this demo reel with the studio's blessing and their commitment for resources. Because they had no way of knowing management immediately how to grant uh, Warner Brothers' request. Mm-hmm. And on the basis of that demo reel, they got the assignment, but they'd never been showrunners before. And the problem was most of the scripts, the network would approve them, but DC wouldn't. DC would approve them, the network wouldn't. The studio's in the middle going... What were DC's problems with the the scripts? Okay, I can answer that best. I can answer that best by quoting the title of one of those scripts in that big box. Rockabye Batman. (laughs) Where essentially Batman becomes uh, a babysitter. They had Robin scripts. They had uh, Batmite scripts. And they were all tonally wrong. They were leaning into the goofier kind of... Well, yeah. And in fact... Was it 50s, 60s? Sean later sort of... I mean, I, won't, I don't want to say confessed, but she, she, she told me that when they interviewed her, they said, do you know Batman? Do you know Batman? And her response was sort of like, uh, yeah, sure, I know Batman. And she went home and did a, cra- you know, a crash course thing for herself. Unfortunately, what she was focusing on was the 1966 Camp Batman. Right. And that was not what anybody wanted. But there was also, beyond that, there was some internal dissent about what the target demo was going to be. Um, Fox, the studio, and the production, and DC Comics were all in agreement that it should skew to teen young adults. Um, and it was always intended that it would be stripped in what we were jokingly calling at that time the 420 slot. And this is before 
<laughs> this is before Teletubbies and, you know, and, and, and people were getting stoned just to, you know, college students were getting stoned just, just to watch the dancing colors, you know. But there was a belief that there was a demo, college-age mm-hmm. students, who would watch Saturday, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, afternoon television, you know, after classes were over. I feel like this is way ahead of its time. Like, Adult Swim is now capitalized on that. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Sam Register and I, uh, who runs WBA now, but was the guy who uh, pretty pretty much was the architect of Adult Swim for for, uh, Cartoon. I have talked about this an awful lot um, because although Cartoon wasn't at that point a member of the family, they were still... uh, and then, you know, they were still a Turner on the Turner side. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, he said that they all looked at Batman, the animated series, and they said, wait a minute, this, this isn't for preschoolers. <laughs> but, the reason, but there was a reason that they were confused, and, and this is what caused a lot of the tonal problems. Um, nobody seemed to have told the ad sales department that we were doing a show for uh, older, you know, older kids. And they booked all of these ads for things like, you know, uh, baby dolls for girls Mm -hmm. uh, ages four four and five, and a lot of Fisher-Price toys for boys. And I remember the first week we were on the air, we were all going into the the office going, what are they doing? What, what, you know? So there really was a lot of internal confusion about how to treat the property. But mm-hmm. we, just went, we just went on our merry way. Uh, Bruce and Eric were suddenly happier with the scripts. Um, Alan was earning his paycheck. Mm-hmm. DC was happy. The network was happy. So we just proceeded as we did and waited for the, the Fox sales department to say, oh, oh, they're not programming for this, for this demo. And there was another thing that was slowing them down too, which became, uh, or rather the outcome, the settlement of the dispute, wasn't really that much of a dispute, um, defined how the property would be treated in mass media, even to this day. When we started, DC was insistent that Batman be colored traditionally. Now, it didn't have to be purple, but gray and blue. Mm-hmm. The studio wanted an all-black costume. DC didn't want that. So the studio in DC were at loggerheads. And Bruce is in the middle saying, um, an all-black costume means that the holding lines and the highlighting have to be in a light gray. It's not going to play. You're not going to like the way it looks. Mm-hmm. But this was a marketing I just wanted it to match whatever was going on in the movies at the time. Exactly. Keaton's Batman. Exactly. Right. But DC raised its hand and said, wait, 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 Why? We have an entire licensing program based on the movie that's separate and discrete from the DCU. Why can't there be an entirely new style guide based on the animation? Why can't? And then suddenly it was the light bulb went off, ka-ching, ka-ching, because instead of one licensing program or two, you, you would then have three. Mm-hmm. And then in our approach to the show, what we did is say, we are not going to be bound by any comics fans' idea of canon. We have a rich mythology here that goes back. At that point, it was 60 years. And we said, why not just cherry pick from the best of it? 
And if some of the stuff is best in terms of conception, but might be played a little bit hokey because the comics are old, we don't need to be bound by that. So what we decided was we'll take elements of the villains from the comics, but if they needed to have a new backstory, if we needed to uh, flesh out something that was only hinted at in the comics, we weren't bound by the comics. We would do that. Um, and only on a couple of occasions did DC pull us back from that. Um, do you remember which ones? Or it... um, well, we, we we eventually got them on the air, but there was one. The there were Batman villains called the Terrible Trio, right. Shark, Vulture, and some other thing. And I remembered that story from when I was a kid. And I had tried. I spent something like three weeks off and on trying to break that story to get people to approve it, and nobody did. They brought in other people after I had left the show to move on, um, who ultimately nailed that character group. But you could never tell. You could never tell how people would react. Uh, Denny O'Neill told Alan Burnett that his take on Two Face was he thought better than anything in the comics, and so the fact that that new team had won DC's confidence helped a lot. Um, well, it is the new canon now. I feel like that is like the the series is what kind of set the tone for comics today. You know, and well, it had its it had its influence in the, in the sense that a lot of the stuff that they imported from the into the comics from the animated series has proven to be far more popular than they expected. Harley Quinn being a perfect example. Right, of course. Um, so that, you know, she's no longer thought of as a, a character associated with the animated series. Um, but what I think we were groundbreaking in was not so much the treatment of the characters so much as th- that approach to the show, not being bound by canon and being free to create what it was essentially a separate Batman universe. They're doing that in Gotham now. Uh, you know, if, if, you've, if you've seen that yeah, show, it's talk, the show, they are, you know, cherry picking from the continuity, reinventing things as necessary. And that is now the fourth, I, I guess you would call it the fourth Batman universe. And uh, so I'm gratified that, that we were vindicated in our conviction that the idea of Batman is bigger than any individual iteration of it. And I think comics always understood that with all the rebooting mm-hmm. that is, you know, part of what they do. But the animation people didn't, or rather I should say, the studio that was just thinking in terms of the Batman brand didn't, didn't really understand at first that there could be multiple iterations of that brand without diluting the brand. And, and you know, what we see now in media, I, I think, was shown by that show, much more so than even the Marvel shows of the time, because the X-Men series was very, very close to the... Yeah, to the it felt film. like carbon copies of a lot of the comics. They did a lot more um, adapting than we did, and, yeah. they, and they did it very, very uh, literally, um, which was, the, which was uh, Saban, the production company. That was really their, their choice and that of the story editor. The, uh, the network supervisor on that show was a guy named Sidney Einwander, who also was the supervisor for the network on uh, Batman. And that, that was also part of... Uh, well, actually, it's, it's how I got hired. Um, I'd been working in live, and I was doing... Primarily, and I was doing some, some comic st- stuff to fill in between TV assignments. And Sid's, Sid's an old buddy of mine, and we were having lunch one day. And I just said offhandedly, jokingly, didn't half-jokingly, didn't really mean anything of it. I said, man, I wish I was still working in animation. Batman's the show I'd love to do. 
you know, because of my background in comic. Yeah. And he rolled his eyes, and I said, what? He said, mm, we're having trouble with that. And I said, so? <laughs> you know? Bring me on and board. So, and about, yeah, and about two weeks later, he called me, and he said, you'll be getting a call from Alan Burnett. And I said, who's that? He said, he's the new supervising producer they've just hired. So between the fact that I could get Denny O'Neill on the phone and Paul Levitz on the phone, and I could get the guy in the network on the phone, um, it seemed like a logical thing to hire me, and it seemed to have worked out. So, you know, but... Uh, Sid told me we we don't want this to be uh, DC's answer to the X Men in the sense that we're not looking for necessarily for that same kind of approach, and that was a, a good thing too because I don't think Bruce would have been happy with that either. Yeah, uh, he always had some very specific ideas about how to reinterpret certain of the villains, and he and Paul had a very close collaborative relationship. So when Paul, uh, rather I'm sorry, when Bruce had a very specific vision, we were all happy to let, you know, Paul handle that, which was why basically the Joker was off limits to everybody except Paul, um, unless he was part of a group. But most of the group villain stories, Paul had a hand in, like almost got him and so on. Right. What um, was it like working with all of them? What was the rapport of the job when you first got there? Well, it was... it. it if I understand the question, uh, in the beginning, it was sort of like we had a wheel that we had to reinvent. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we found was common cause in, or, or I should say a common vocabulary, rather, um, based on what we understood of comics, not just the source material. Uh, Bruce, by his own admission, before he wanted to do the show, was not really all that familiar with Batman. He wasn't an expert on the character. He, was more into, he had been more into the Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. But he understood comics. He understood the tropes. He understood the idiom. And the fact that, and in terms of my dealings with him, the fact that a lot of his gods in comics, like Alex Toth, also in animation, of course, um, and, and believe me, Alex Toth was God at Warner Brothers uh, Animation, not just because of the comics stuff that he had done, but because you know he had been... Uh, a model designer for Hanna-Barbera and all of those shows that they make fun of on uh, Adult Swim, you know, Birdman, Herculoids, Space Ghost, the main models for all of those were designed. All those designs are beautiful too. Man, there's an art book out that I just spent like an hour Mm -hmm. just pouring through. (laughs) Sure. And what Alex was, was the first guy who was able to develop through his understanding of, of minimalism, uh, he would take uh, a model or th- that he had done. I mean, he would do a fig- he, he would take a figure of a superhero character, and then would do his own cleanup, was, you know, eliminating the rendering, the, the over rendering that w- would be common in comics, so that the thing you know could be anim- animated. And his sense of design and his sense of um, how to approach the characters minimalistically um, so that they could be animated was a great inspiration to Bruce. And what Bruce did was take his ideas and do them ten times better. Uh, Bruce was an extraordinary model designer. And I, I, I wonder if any of his uh, theory sheets are floating around the internet, if you know what those are. Mm. Uh, a theory is a term for... Uh, a sheet that shows the animator 
who's doing, you know, the in-between. Of course, this is all before the digital age. This is all manual at this point, okay? Uh, how to draw the characters. Um, how to block out the figure in non-reproducing pencil. Where to draw through. And he, he, and he would break it down into the elements of the costume. Right, examples of what things, not to do. Things called cape theory. Showing how to draw the cape so that I'm it could sure be pretty sure they're animated. floating around. Yeah. They're really Brilliant. cool. And they're a tremendous education for anybody who, you know, they're not in CalArts yet, but they want to learn how to, you know, how to be an animator, how to draw for animation. They're great. They're just great. But I don't know if that answers your question about rapport. Well, yeah. What was the general vibe on the job? Uh, were, were, what were you guys doing that people wouldn't necessarily know, I guess, just from hearing stories about, you know, making the show? Uh, but, like, what, what are some inside stories? <laughs> well, it was mostly... What you had were, th- were three writer-story editors who understood animation and understood the restrictions of TV animation, but were perfectly capable of throwing off the idea that this, this is for kids and it doesn't have to be uh, bang on the nose. Everything does not have to be explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we... We were perfectly capable because we were confident in the animation to do it with a look, you know. So we would sit around going, "Well, why, why do we need a line there?" You know, and sometimes the challenges posed by requests that were perhaps a little unrealistic led to some of our, our better improvisations. One of those being in his original conception of Batman, Bruce didn't want Batman to speak at all. Really? Yeah, wanted him to be this terrifying silent figure. And we, on the writing side, were at pains to point out, well, that's going to be extremely difficult to play a scene. If you go down that road, you're going to be under pressure from the network to drop in voiceover narration from Batman. Mm -hmm. The last thing he'd want would be first-person narration. And... It, it, it will just create so many problems that will slow us down. So we, had to, we talked him out of that, but the compromise was we'll make him as terse as we possibly can. And what is, as, po- as you possibly can mean? Well, it means that when he's trying to terrify a criminal to get information out of him, he'll like, drop him off the side of the building on a rope and won't say very much. Um, the scenes with Commissioner Gordon, of course were expository to advance the mystery and we couldn't help him out there. But what we tried to do is do as much of that in, without Gordon uh, in the Batcave between him and Alan, uh, Alfred rather, and uh, with the cowl off his head. So that was like Bruce. <laughs> that was like that. The mask was off. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it, that's, that sense that we had the freedom of constantly Challenge, the freedom to constantly challenge conventions. You know, why do we need to write it that way? Why does, why does the scene need to be this uh, explicit? Why can't it be a little bit more oblique? And the mentality on the part of the networks that, you know, I mean, kids were all, regardless of their age, you know, to use an old Rod Serling expression, third grade idiots, and had to be talked down to, was so pervasive 
that it started to affect storytelling in the sense that you try to do a foreshadowing. You try to plant something in Act 1 that was going to pay off in Act 3, and you get, no, 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 the kids won't remember that. The, the, after the commercial break, the kids won't understand what's going on. You have to reiterate the exposition in Act 3. And we just said, no, 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 we don't need to do that. And fortunately for us, the network guy was in our corner. Uh, the, one, the one network person that drove, not us, but I would say more the artists crazy, was uh, Standards and Practices, hmm. which was nothing like it is today, if, the, if Standards and Practices even exists anymore. Well, because the whole way of thinking about television was completely different. Then. Mm-hmm. Now, that you have, now that you have streaming and on, so many on-demand venues, um, the whole concept of a, a, a target demo being associated with a day part and a time period is completely gone. Anybody can access anything at any time. So there's no such thing as an 8 o'clock show, 9 o'clock show, a 10 o'clock show. And if you look at any of the 8 o'clock action-adventure shows now, Gotham is a perfect example. There's not only murder and mayhem, but there's murder and mayhem mayhem in very, very uh, gore-graphic terms. And the language restrictions are, are not there anymore. Right. Um, they exist still in cartoons where there's the presumption uh, of a children's audience. But uh, the way of having to think about the programming then was completely different. So I find that when I talk about, well, we were pushing back against restrictions, people usually give me the, well, what, what do you mean? The, you know, what kind of restrictions are you talking about? I find I have to explain that. I'm surprised with what you were able to get away with. I mean, even using Paging the Crime Doctor as an example. Okay. Uh, Neat if we segue. May, <laughs> if we may dive in uh, to that. Uh, I mean... Uh, a lot of the violence towards, you know, Leslie Tompkins mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the, the circumstances of what's going on is not something, I, I don't think you see some of that in cartoons today, though. Uh, I think you were able to push back in a way that is fairly unique. Well, I don't know how much of that was in the script. I mean, certainly they followed the action, um, but in terms of the way it was treated and embellished, um, that was the storyboard artists. They had a system where they encouraged us to be less specific. I mean, the, the animation business that I came up in, the, the main difference between live action and animation was, in live action, you don't direct on paper, and it's all master scene. But in animation, you are directing on paper in, in the sense that it's shot by shot, and you break up the dialogue. And I, was, I always turned in scripts uh, that I run through with a stopwatch, you know, to make sure that the, that the track wouldn't go over. So you would read it to yourself? Yep, and yep, yep. And people got used to hearing me doing that with the, closed, with the door closed. Did you ever do any uh, oh, Who's in there with him? No, 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 he's timing a script. <laughs> oh, okay, you know. And uh, what you would do is you would break down, if you had anything that was three or four lines of dialogue, you would break that down over the shots. But they asked us, no, 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 we want 35-page scripts. And we, we said, well, no. And Alan didn't want that either. So we were, we were coming in around 40, 45. Now, it's gotten in animation to the point where they want the board artists to contribute so much that it's perfectly acceptable. Whereas when I started, it was unprofessional to say uh, a fight ensues in which such and such character does this and ends up doing that and it's three lines and that's like uh, a 30 second 
40-second block, but it's just three lines on the page. And uh, we're turning in scripts now, 27, 30 pages. But, our, but we were running, you know, as I say, between 40 and 47. But that still gave them, if, if you were doing it shot by shot, a lot of room to play in the boards. So some of, I know in the, the, the climactic, I, ha- I haven't, I meant to watch the shows again before coming, coming here, and unfortunately I didn't get a chance. Oh, but good. as I recall, there is a, a long sequence um, in, at the end, the, the, the climactic action set piece involves girders and buildings. And yeah, running and making like a right? big jump. And yeah. Right, right. Well, I was, I, I was the one who always kept saying, get him up. Get him up above street level. You know, we had a lot of writers would come in and they would stage scenes, but they were all in like a warehouse or they were in the street. Mm-hmm. And they had to be reminded that this was a show <laughs> that the studio was deficiting huge amounts of money. I mean, we had the resources to do this stuff as well as it could be done. So, you know, don't be afraid of that. Any of the old... All of the old rules for limited animation on Saturday morning don't apply here. Which is what you were coming out of in the you know previous decade. Well, everybody was. Yeah. Everybody was. Um, Disney... And Warner Brothers had just started making these investments in strip syndicated shows just a few years earlier because both of them had a game plan uh, that we didn't know about. I mean, it was never the intention to stay on Fox from the very beginning, but we didn't know that. Hmm. Um, And part of the reason why we were, as we got toward toward the end of the season, we were given uh, more and more permission not that I ever asked for it, but the production was given more and more permission to ignore the network. And we didn't know why. And then we found out, oh, well, because we're going to be on the CW and Warner Brothers is going to own that too. So, so may know. as well just... And that was why they were... Yeah, that was why they were making uh, the investment. They figured um, after the first two films, Batman's a franchise that's going to be around for a while. Um, we'll be able to do well with this show in home vid. And this was before the Emmys, you know. So... Which it won for? Uh, there were uh, two te- advice. Two technical, I think. There were two technical technical credits, but the Emmy. I mean, all of us got all of the story. Yeah. got them. Uh, yeah, uh, I think Heart of Ice was the episode that was submitted for consideration, uh, but the the writing award was uh, a general one, writing slash story editing in an animation series. So that's we all we all got our little. Uh, that's so cool. Statues, um, but. We were able to do things like forced perspective shots. We could do aerial shots of people falling. And, right, which in know, animation, people might not know that you have to create that angle <laughs> well, separately, or at least like a background painting to match it. Well, the big difference between limited and full, uh, limited TV animation and full animation yeah. was, not anymore, certainly everything's digital now, but was what's called the multiplane camera. And almost... Always too expensive for animation or TV animation studios. You never had one at Hanna Barbera. What a multiplane camera does is separate out planes so that you can do things like. Well, I'll just give you an example of what you couldn't do without a multiplane camera. If you had an establishing shot of a building and there was a full moon, mm-hmm. you couldn't push in on the building unless you had a multiplane camera and could put the moon on a separate cell. Because if you just pushed in on the layout, the painting, the moon would get bigger. 
Yeah, is it, I mean, so there were all was kinds it of things that pioneered that, or was it? I'm sorry. Was it Disney that yeah, pioneered oh, yeah, that? Yeah, because yeah, I think yeah. they have one in the Walt Disney Family yes. Museum in San Francisco. You yes, take yes, a look at. yes. The Disney people uh, pretty very much cool. invented it. Yeah. yeah, and because it was exclusive to them for a while, and then were very expensive to buy. It was just one of the things that Hannah and Barbera, when they along with Jay Ward, at different times, pretty much invented limited animation for television. They said, no, we have to figure out a way to do this without one of those things. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to go back to... <laughs> no, no, I don't want to derail your, uh, your train of thought. You, you, you had brought up uh, Page and the Crime Doctor. Yeah, so. well, let's talk about it. How, okay. did, how did the story come to be? It's one of the two that you have, like, sole writing credits on, uh, beyond just... No, actually, I shared, I, as I recall, I shared the credit, forgive me, uh, with several other people. Oh, okay. But it was my original story. Yeah, um, how, how that... Well, Leslie Tompkins was a strange character in the series in the sense that it's not consistent. Um, there were two versions of Leslie Tompkins in the comics. Originally, she was a little old lady who I believe she had witnessed the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne in Crime Alley, or she had some connection to something, and she, put a, she would put a rose in Crime Alley, and that was the invention of Crime Alley. In Denny's story, it was called There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. Later, Mike Barr reworked her as a two-fisted chick, uh, in his words, um, made her the uh, doctor at a, at a clinic who knew... Batman's secret identity and was his, the person he went to to patch her up. But the model that they had come up with for her for that for that first story was this little old lady with a bun in her hair. And I said, right, no, 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 it was no, appointment in crime that. alley. Yeah, exactly. Appointment in crime alley. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I showed Alan the comics, the more recent comics, with this you know feisty character, and he said, "All right, we'll change the model." And then I suggested Diana Muldar for the voice for the first show. They, all right, so I always wanted to do a story with her. And since she was being played as an older person, I, I came up with the idea, well, maybe she and Thomas Wayne and Matthew Thorne was the... Was uh, that Rupert the, Thorne. Rupert Thorne. Well, wait, well, which, which one was the... Bro- yeah. Right. Right. And so the, this, what I wanted to do was a corrective to an episode that they haven't, you know, they sort of tacitly agreed to ignore, and I think that pissed Bruce off a little bit. They did a show, it was purely to get the stunt casting of Adam West for The Voice, called uh, Oh, Beware, Beware the, the Grey Ghost. Ghost. Yeah. Yes. Which implied that Bruce had had a very healthy, uh, close relationship with his father. And what I had always posited was um, Tom Swain was a very busy man. He didn't mean to be a distant father, but because he was wealthy right. and busy, didn't spend a lot of time with his kid. And the fact that he had this rare opportunity to go to the movies with him and then felt guilt because he wanted to see this movie that put them in crime alley. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, it's, it's guilt is the motivation for the superhero. I mean, this is not new, but it made a little bit more sense. So we sort of tacitly agreed to forget the Grey Ghost story. And what I was doing, was, what I wanted to do was build to that moment at the end of the, the show. I wanted to 
deal with a Bruce Wayne who didn't remember his father, but still missed his parents. And that was part of that longing, part of that missing them. And create a story in which he would learn I love that. that. I think it's such a powerful ending. It's very, it's emotionally resonant. I think it's, it's something that like, you know, to this day, it's like when you talk to family who, you know, know you better than you knew yourself at the time. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. Um, That closing scene, that was mine. I threw out what we got. I mean, we, we went through many, many drafts of that. I had a hard time nailing it. Um, It's also a rare happy ending in a Batman episode. Uh, to some extent. Interesting. <laughs> I didn't necessarily think of it that way, but I remember, you know, writing, you know, tell me about my father, which is the tagline on the show, and wondering how Alan was going to react when I brought it in. Mm-hmm. And he, he looked up and he said, I got chills. I said, oh, come on. Said, no, no, I got chills. I said, well, we better cast it right. Yeah. And we were lucky. We, we, uh, we already knew. We had um, in, in Rupert Thorne, uh, we had John Vernon, right? Wonderful, he was Canadian, fantastic. Wonderful Canadian actor. Yeah, I and mean, he was great. I mean, he was he was one of those people because he'd done a lot of stuff for the CBC where he would nail it. Um, He's also it, one of my favorite it, cult uh, horror movies, Killer Clowns from. Oh Space. yes, yes, yes. Well, of course, I you know everybody on the show remembered him primarily as Dean Wormer in in Animal House. Oh and, yeah, yeah he goes, oh Dean Wormer's here today. You know, <laughs> I mean, and uh, and we got Joseph Campanella. Uh, to play Matthew Thorne, and I was just just thrilled that Diana Moldar was was doing the voice. Yeah, the voice yeah. cast in this episode in particular is great. Well, I think it was pretty pretty good in, in most of them. Oh yeah, um, Andrea Romano, the voice director. We would she and I would sometimes disagree a little bit about interpretations, and so did the actors. Actually, uh, the, the Riddler shows are, are one of those things that you know. You, you take your, you know, you pays your money and you takes your chances. You, you try for stuff and sometimes it doesn't end up in the finished product. But the idea behind the the riddler that we were doing was that uh, he was this arrogant, hugely arrogant, intellectual snob. And the, my original conception was that it would be played very, very flat, very, very, you know, emotionally distant. Um, the voice I kept hearing in my head was George Sanders. Mm. But not coincidentally, um, their feeling was in the studio, not not at the script stage, not at the network, but their feeling was it was too much like Mr. Freeze, the way it would it would come across. So John Glover was urged to, to play it up a little uh, bit. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, to do things with vocal inflection that varied it a little bit, but. We had said in the script very specifically, you know, flat affect. Hmm. And so John came in and his first reading was very cold. And I thought it was wonderful. Because he can really, he, he yeah. can do that. Oh, he's, he's great. Yeah. Incredible. But, but, but Andrea kept going, more energy, more energy. So we got it. In the end, we got this kind of performance that went yeah. all over the, you know. And it was so funny because when we did the second one, they brought John back. And John started out in the read through. At that same energy level, uh-huh. you know, and Andrea pulls out a boombox with a tape from the first show, <laughs> holds it up, plays it back, and there's John's voice on the machine doing all of this, and, and John just looks at us, "Oh, you want that again?" <laughs> and that—that's how they recorded it. Um, but yeah, we did. We had we had some really great voice talent, and they were remarkably. 
I mean, I, I've never known ta- a talent to go out of their way to compliment writers. I mean, mm. that was, I mean, that was amazing. Well, it's a joy to work on a good show, though. You know? Well, that's what they said. I mean, I, re- I remember once uh, uh, Ephraim Zimbalist said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite surprised at how good the writing on some of these cartoons is. And, and I said, oh, he says, yeah, I, I just did uh, King Arthur on uh, Prince of, The Legend of Prince Valiant. My goodness, those scripts. I had written a couple of those, too. And I just said, wow, well, that's really, you know. And, but they were, and they were also, um, they were also thrilled to be there largely because, you know, they were getting good money because those things were done on a, on a buyout. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's nice to pull down that kind of payday for a couple of hours working. You don't have to get dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Show you up know. in sweatpants and a hoodie. You're set. Yeah. We, we, there were, we had a couple of people we thought would show up in a bathrobe <laughs> any day now, you know. But, uh, but, they were, but they were great. Well, and we were talking about the cast with uh, Paging the Crime Doctor. So mm-hmm. you had these three mm-hmm. kind of as the core guest right. characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what made you want to, you know, dive into another new character, Thorne's brother? Well, they always wanted Batman villains uh, from the comics. They wanted more... They wanted us to reach beyond the rogues gallery that people might be familiar with if all they knew was the television series, Mm -hmm. which was why, for example, doing Two-Face and the Scarecrow were high priorities for us because... They never showed up on there. Exactly, exactly. And so they said, well, what else is there? And nobody there knew. um, And what they didn't know about was something... I, I got them a couple of copies from DC. There had been something called the Batman Encyclopedia, that had been published in the late 60s, early 70s. A guy named Michael Fleischer did this extraordinary uh, reference volume, this thick, um, literally an encyclopedia, listing everything, uh, chronicling all of the stories that had been published in Batman and Detective and World's Finest up to that period, Mm -hmm. uh, 1970 or so. And in in those encyclopedic entries... They were able to, I, I was also able to show them a whole range of villains, you know, that they hadn't heard of. The Crime Doctor was one of them. Since, by pure coincidence, his name was Thorne, and the mayor was Rupert Thorne. I believe he was the, wasn't he the mayor? Uh, was no, the, Hill was the oh, mayor. Hill was Thorne the mayor. Thorne was just right. kind of a mob boss. Right, 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 right. But I okay. didn't realize that the Crime Doctor was an actual villain that had existed. Oh, yeah. yeah but in the first Beforehand. In the 40s. A lot of the 40s villains we tried to do um, never survived past the outline stage. Cause it just, um, well, but, but largely because Bruce didn't think they'd look good in animation. Um, in See No Evil, for example, the, other, the only show I, I've taken a written by credit on, um, that was originally supposed to be the Mirror Master. Mm, that makes sense. Um, but Bruce basically it's said... Like a flash rogue? I'm sorry, not the Mirror Master, Mirror Man. Oh, okay. Uh, Mirror Man was a, a 50s villain uh, in, in Batman um, who did things with mirrors and had glasses that were mirrors. And Bruce, Bruce said, even for us, mirrors are too difficult to animate. Hmm. And I should point out that what he meant by that is not that it was difficult for the board artists. It wasn't difficult here in America. But he was insecure that the sending it overseas. Yeah, yeah, because they were already budgeted for retakes, but they didn't want to ask for trouble. 
You know, it would, um, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes they couldn't get the retakes back in time for the first airing. Some of the shows, uh, the first uh, Rachel Ghoul episode is one of those. They went back for retakes twice after it aired so that the second airing and the third airing are all slightly different. Oh, interesting. And I don't know if, if anybody's ever publicized that or if there's anybody trying to get the alternate versions. But there are a couple right, of the episodes. original first airing that they happened to grab on VHS or right. something at home. Right. Um, what the DVDs are mastered from, I don't know. I, I would assume it would be the, the final version that, that Bruce and Eric blessed. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, so they didn't, wanna, they didn't want to ask for trouble there was another villain called the cavalier who was essentially you know uh, a french musketeer Mm -hmm. in the costume you know the the plumed hat and so on the thought was "Mm, that'll look silly (laughs) so there were there were there were several other villains like that that never made it into the show but we did uh go to that well yeah you you did get crime doctor out of it and the 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 show we were talking about before we started to roll uh the fox the shark and the vulture. Oh, the terrible, the terrible trio. trio. Yes, yeah, is another is is another example of that. Um, so, how we arrived at what we did, um, our iteration of Batman, if you will, was really much a product of a mixture of sensibilities. And when they didn't complement each other, the compromise was always. I, I always had the the feeling that the things we ended up with. It was really a case of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, mm-hmm. um, because a, a lot of the invention, a lot of the, what we did that made this stuff different from either the comics or the certainly the, the original television series, um, was a was a product of that kind of pushing back against what's hokey. But what can we find in here that works that we can you know that we can pull out? Were you have any other thoughts about paging the crime doctor? Just that. I was very happy with the way it turned out, and I'm very gratified that some people appreciate it. I, I don't think the animators liked it very much. They, uh, it, was re- it was referred to around the studio as the geezer show. <laughs> Just because of the characters involved? Well, yeah, yeah. They, well, they had to be if they were contemporaneous with Thomas Wayne. Uh, I love that that exists, though. I think that there's not enough of that in you know, children's animation. <laughs> I want to see a mix of characters. I, wanna, I mean, it, I don't know. It felt like a more adult story. Well, then we succeeded. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, well, I have some questions from fans. Oh, okay. Uh, if you don't mind diving into that. Uh, the first all. person says, IMDb lists one of your credits as being a writer on the 80s revival of The Twilight Zone. Oh, yes. Were, you, were there any experiences that you learned while working on that show that you applied to do, uh, that you applied to at later jobs like Batman the Animated Series? Mm, I... I Things I learned, uh, not not specifically. I mean, Twilight Zone wasn't the only thing I had done in live action. Sure. But in a general sense, it was another thing that qualified me for being hired on the show because they wanted people who had live action credits. I mean, the way Bruce had put it to the woman at Warner Brothers, Barbara Simon, who was responsible for putting out feelers to agents and so on, we want a live action writer and she said well what do you mean by that and what he was trying to articulate is we want people who know how to think outside the animation box uh wasn't that hard to come by um the the things that and in fact of all the live action shows that i've done twilight zone is perhaps the 
least influential in my approach in the sense that because it was an anthology show, we bought pitches from writers. The writers came, it was their story, and we either bought it or said no because there was a rights reversion clause. After CBS was done with it, the rights to those stories reverted to the writers and they could make short stories or novels out of them, huh. whatever they want. And in fact, there, is a, there are a couple of collections of short stories based on The Twilight Zone. And we did things in the exact opposite way. We did, you know, or at least I did. I pitched it, and this is one of the things that I, you know, I've said Alan was, was very receptive to the different ways that I wanted to work. I said, let's make a deal with the writer, a writer that we know can execute. We can break the story ourselves, get it approved by the network, hand it to the writer. Um, so writers didn't have to pitch for us. They just had to, you know, if, if, if the senior, senior staff didn't know who they were, submit a sample. But basically, if they were familiar with the writer's work, and mm-hmm. I'd worked with them. Because, see, my job as a story editor, and again, I approached it a little bit differently than the other two, was to guarantee the script. So, in other words, if a guy I brought in really screwed that up <laughs> and really flamed out, it was my job to, to fix it so that we wouldn't have to write off the script. So, that was, that was my role as a, as a script guarantor. And... Since Twilight Zone was very, very much a writer show in the sense that there weren't any stars, that you know, it was very, very easy to develop, to polish, to burnish uh, my rewrite job. So I guess in in that sense, perhaps Twilight Zone was helpful. Cool. Do you have a preference when it comes to writing established villains like the Joker versus original villains uh, such as Lloyd Ventrix? Well. Lloyd Ventrix isn't original. Uh, <laughs> Lloyd Ventrix is the Mirror Man. There we go. Um, <laughs> Take that fan question. <laughs> so, well, in See No Evil, basically what we had was a supervillain where we had to take the super out. Right. <laughs> you know, so we, we, made, we made him, you know, a minor criminal who stole tech to do his invisibility right. instead of mirror trick. But to answer the question, um, it's very, very difficult to come up with anything original in comics. You know, it's, it's, it's all been done, um, which is which you can see in the reboots in comics. Basically mm-hmm. what they do is they take this character and put him in the suit, and, they, you know, they, you know, and it's, just, it's just an endless reshuffling of the, the, the deck chairs. You know? right. um, what I prefer, though, is having first crack at an established villain in a situation like this when we're reworking the character. To be able to to tweak it, to play with it a little bit, and I envied I envied the the story editors who had a chance, uh, you know, to do that. Um, and I don't know, for example, with the with with Rachel Ghoul, we didn't want to tamper with it at all, and with uh, the the Riddler, we we were pretty close. But what I what I prefer is being able to roll up my sleeves and say, "All right, this is stupid. Let's change this." Even if it's just a little tiny detail, like mm-hmm. spelling Edward Nigma with a Y instead of an I, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, little things like that. I guess that answers the question. Yeah, it did. <laughs> uh, well, thank. At you great, so much. at great length, in fact. Are we winding up? I think we're winding up. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about more on the next episode. Thank you so much for chatting, Bat. My pleasure to be here. Well, there you guys go. Another Batman the Animated Podcast is laid to rest. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. I'd love to hear what you say. Email me at batspodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at batspodcast or at heyjustin. And if you like what you heard, you can donate. 
Batman the Animated Podcast is made by me, Justin Michael. Casey Trela helped make the theme song, and Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast. Special thanks to my guests today, Zachary Sigelko, Chris Johnson, and Martin Pasco. And of course, This American Life co-creator and producer, Tori Malatia, who called me up the other night and asked me, Tell me about my father. Sorry, Tori. I honestly know nothing about him. Uh, You might want to ask Ira. All right, guys. That's it for now. See you on the next episode, because I watch every one of you while you listen to these. How's that for creepy? Okay. Bye. Bye.